Hi, I'm Copthorne MacDonald, and this Wisdom Page podcast episode is titled The Path to Wisdom. Its content is adapted from Chapter 10 of my book, Toward Wisdom. In podcast episode 10, I referred to three progressively deeper levels of re-identification, intellectual, intuitive, and experiential. Here I'd like to apply these same terms to three sequential stages in the process of becoming a wiser person. Although I call the first stage the intellectual stage, it is also a stage of need meeting and general preparation. It is the stage of life during which our basic needs are met. The physiological, security, belongingness, and esteem needs. Maslow's deficiency needs. If these needs are not adequately met during this period, we're held back. We're not totally free to follow the path that goes beyond them and are not even likely to be drawn to it. Gail Sheehy, Sam Keen, and others who have commented on the stages of adult life have noted that this period is characterized by exploration and experimentation. Starting in our teens and on through our 20s and 30s, We explore the informational world. We read, we think, we act, we travel, we experiment with life. I did it, you did it, or are in the process of doing it. Just as important, however, we load our memories with data for future processing. To the extent we live this stage actively, the stored data will be there in quantity. To the extent that we live this stage attentively, it will be there in quality too. Later in life, often in the 40s or 50s, the youthful illusion of immortality ends. And for many people, culture sanctioned games like career, consumption, and status begin to lose their appeal. Some people at this point feel the need to move on to a more meaningful way of being. They undertake an inner journey a trip of psychological, spiritual investigation and development. In doing so, they enter the intuitive stage of their growth toward wisdom. I don't mean to imply here that only older people decide to take inner journeys. These days, increasing numbers of people in their 20s and 30s are also doing it. Some do it instead of adventuring outward. Others include it as part of a mixed bag of adventures. It would be exciting to see how this all works out. Do you share my guess that unless too much of the usual kind of personal development gets left out, starting early will prove much better than starting late? In the intuitive stage, the barrier between the subconscious and the intellect gradually thins. Communication between intellect and intuition is established, and a mutually beneficial relationship begins. Solitude, psychotherapy, and meditation are all aids that may be called upon to help this occur. Once the communication starts, beneficial things happen. For one thing, unconscious junk, previously repressed and denied material, may again become conscious, removing its ability to block movement forward and allowing it to be dealt with. For another, the intellect opens to the advice and problem-solving activities of that 
take everything into account intuitive process. Then one begins to have those intuition-born insights and gestalt flips, those mental aha experiences through which we rebuild our worldview from the inside out. The worldview we formed in the intellectual stage arose from an outside-in process. It was the product of perception, intellect, and cultural training. The brain took in data from the outside world and, for the most part, ordered it in conventional, culturally sanctioned ways. In contrast, our new worldview arises from an inside-out process. It is the product of quiet-minded flips to more holistic ways of seeing, and our own intuitive reshuffling and reviewing of decades of data. The intuitive stage is a stage of enlightenment and revisioning, a stage when Maslow's peak experiences occur more frequently than before, a stage in which the brain-mind begins to interpret old data in new ways. The label experiential in the final experiential stage does not refer to having new life experiences at this stage of life, which is usually the 50s or later. It refers instead to the deeply experiential way in which the world is encountered at this point via the newly acquired perspectives. This is the stage for a final house cleaning, for leaving the last vestiges of reactivity behind, for living wisely from day to day. It is the stage for becoming an agent of noumenal creativity, a channel through which holistic values become manifested in the world. It is the stage for moving from intuitive flashes of self-realization toward a continuously experienced gut-felt re-identification with the whole process and its ground, for moving from transient peak experiences to Maslow's ongoing plateau experience. The idea of becoming all I'm capable of becoming takes on a new meaning at this stage. In the intellectual stage of growth, it meant actualizing our personal potential to the very limit. Now it means actualizing the highest potentials of the universal process. There is a paradox. On one hand, we are there already. It's just a matter of seeing that. On the other, there are many things that interfere with seeing what must be seen. One wall of the room in which I'm sitting is covered with books. In many of those books, some spiritual teacher tells the reader that everything necessary for the most radical kind of personal transformation is already there within the person, just waiting to be activated the minute we see our existential situation as it truly is. I've read words like those many times. I would generally say, yeah, exactly, and then keep right on looking outside myself for the answer. It is all there. We simply have not yet developed our powers of attending to the point where we can see exactly what is there, and perfectly obvious when observed under the right conditions from the right perspective. Fortunately, there are those simple, dumb-seeming, stupid-seeming things we can do to develop that ability. To learn to play a cello or a piano well 
there is a whole array of skills that we must acquire. Here the task is simpler, but just as arduous. There's really only one skill needed, to call it mindfulness, or bare attention, or careful, continuous, non-judgmental awareness, or non-identified noticing. Whatever we call it, whatever we call it, the time and effort required to master this skill are similar to that required to master a musical instrument. Ken Wilbur compared the total task of reaching self-realization with that of getting a Ph.D. Beware of those who promise shortcuts and fast results. There is no shortcut, no easy way. When it comes to playing the piano or learning to type or getting a Ph.D., we accept this. But we still keep looking for some shortcut to become a wise, free, and loving person. Does that make sense? There is a way of looking at spiritual practices that may help us better understand their role in all of this. I refer to the rule of ripening. The rule is this. You choose to practice now, with effort, what you eventually hope will be your effortless, natural way. As you practice, you gradually ripen. You slowly move toward the time when the fruit of insight and self-realization is fully ripe and suddenly drops. It is this ripening process that we work on in the intuitive and experiential stages of practice. While ripening is a helpful metaphor, rebalancing is perhaps a better fit with our image of the gestalt flip. We could say that spiritual practices help shift the gestalt balance so that the flip is more likely to occur. Look at it this way. The influences we encounter in normal living are heavily weighted toward keeping us locked into the ordinary perspective and point of view. If we spend 100% of our waking time in this mode, then the likelihood of flipping to that other perspective is very small. If, however, we modify our mode of living and spend 6 or 13 or 19% of our waking time, 1 or 2 or 3 hours a day, in practices that pull us toward that other view, then the probability shifts. If, in addition, we attend an occasional week or 10-day retreat during which we spend 100% of our time in such a practice, it shifts even further. For decades, you and I have been conditioned to interpret perceptual data in the ordinary, culturally accepted way. Given this, it's not surprising that we must practice another way of seeing for a while quite a while before it becomes our natural way. Ripening and rebalancing are useful ways of conceptualizing the role of spiritual practices. Another is E.F. Schumacher's concept of adequatio, or adequateness of mind. Quote, The understanding of the knower must be adequate to the thing to be known. Unquote, said Schumacher in a guide for the perplexed. In his view, the role of spiritual practices is to develop this adequatio, or level of adequateness. Piaget, the great student of child development, pointed out that there are whole classes of concepts that are meaningless to a five-year-old. We could say that the five-year-old does not have the necessary adequateness of mind to comprehend them. Spiritual practices help adults develop the adequateness of mind for wisdom 
and holistic kinds of understanding. There are a few people who seem to have been worn wise and caring, or who developed wisdom at a young age as the result of special life circumstances. The rest of us need psychological spiritual practices to ripen us, to shift the gestalt balance, to develop our mental adequateness. Ruth Benedict, you will recall, pointed out that our outlook and behavior depend largely upon which of a broad range of potentials are reinforced and strengthened by the prevailing culture. Fortunately, we're not prisoners of the culture into which we were born. We can change our personal situations in ways that alter the balance of influences to which we expose ourselves. We can try to create a friendly, supportive microculture around ourselves. We can adopt a spiritual practice and practice with effort being the ways we effortlessly want to be. Reading has been a helpful element in my practice, but it's a potentially dangerous one. For years, reading was my practice, and that just doesn't work. Books are great for acquiring intellectual information of many types. They can also be guides of a sort on the spiritual path, but no more than that. No more than signposts pointing the way or maps giving a rough description of the territory to be explored. The exploration itself must be first-hand and experiential, direct and immediate. As Krishnamurti put it, you have to see for yourself. You can read the words over and over again, but without first-hand experience to connect the words to, they don't really sink in. You must see what is going on in your own mind, in your own actions, and in your own relationship with the immediate situation. Intellectual hearsay and reports from others won't do. Mind must see for itself through its own direct experience. The words make perfect sense after you've been there, but the words alone won't take you there. That being said, books are still useful in all three stages as motivators and clarifiers. They're a helpful influence, a needed element in that microculture we're trying to set up around ourselves. Tapes of lectures and retreat talks are worthwhile for the same reasons. I often spend the last half hour before going to sleep reading Nisargadatta or Krishnamurti or one of half a dozen others. These are true knowers of reality, and the books of such people bear countless readings. It's exciting to reread them because as my practice and understanding develop, I see more clearly what they were getting at, the truths to which their words point. Old passages will often sparkle with new clarity, and sometimes I'll run across wonderful, illuminating passages that I never remember seeing before. Yes, Books are valuable at all stages of the process, but you can't read your way to inner freedom. It not only takes great patience to enter the intuitive stage of the practice, it also takes great courage. For one thing, we must be willing to dive deep and face the unknown truth about what the badly programmed brain and its mind are up to. We must be willing to cut through our self-images. There is much fear connected with that. Still, 
it is only if we are courageous enough to see the reality of what is, see the greed and hate and anger and fear and loneliness, that escape from their domination is possible. Today we are confused, and despite our heartfelt wish to be free and earnest efforts to become free, there is part of each of us that wants to stay blind to the present patterns of mind and action. Mindfulness reveals all that needs to be revealed for that freeing transformation to take place, if we practice it diligently enough and long enough. But before we can deal with the considerable trials of practice, we must first overcome our fear of starting. The fear that keeps people from trying meditation is the same fear that keeps them from seeking counseling and psychotherapy. They sense that there is something of a tangled mess in the mind, and they would dearly love to have it all untangled. But they resist the obvious. To untangle the tangle, you have to look at it, to see clearly the present tangled state. With the seeing of what is tangled and how, there is the hope of freeing it up, almost an assurance of freeing it up. Keeping the tangle in the dark and hoping by some magic it will become untangled isn't a helpful attitude, however understandable. We also need another kind of courage. We need the courage to affirm our own potential for great achievement, our potential to change the world significantly. Maslow called our denial of this potential the Jonah Complex and warned, if you deliberately set out to be less than you are capable of being, you'll be unhappy for the rest of your life. Nisargadatta pointed out that there is a bit of faith needed to undertake an intuitive stage practice. It's not the leap of faith that Christianity asked of us, it's the amount of faith required to repeat an experiment that some scientist has already run and reported on. This is what I did, and this is what happened, the report says. You tentatively believe that. At least you believe it enough to repeat the experiment. You need that much faith. Once underway, things begin to change for the better, slowly at times, with ups and downs, but unmistakably for the better. The mind gets quiet and the first insights come. A budding confidence replaces the original apprehension. From that point on, enthusiasm builds and a desire to continue. In the final experiential stage, a radical change starts to take place. With the mind quiet and the worst of the ego out of the way, the more profound knowledge or being or love, whatever we want to call it, starts to live the body-mind. It's as though this physical being is its avenue from the realm of potential into the realm of physical existence where it wants to express itself. It's as though it has been waiting with perfect patience for this body-mind to become willing to cooperate, to be taken over in a sense, to be lived by its values. I first experienced this at a meditation retreat some years ago. Shortly before going on this retreat, I had read Freedom in Meditation, an interesting book by Princeton psychologist Patricia Carrington. In it, she told the story of a writer who had integrated meditation into the writing process. She said that he treated his, quote, unconscious mind like a loyal servant 
Before going to bed, he was respectively asked his unconscious to have the next material ready in the morning. Upon waking, he would meditate for an hour and then begin writing. The requested material would always be there. When I read this, I had no trouble believing that it worked, but I smiled at the loyal servant part. It seemed needlessly personal. At one point during the retreat, however, I recalled the story and thought, why not try it? I had a problem at the time. I'd been struggling with a writing project, trying to figure a good way of organizing the material, but with little success. I'd considered many approaches, but none seemed exactly right. So I decided to respectfully ask my subconscious self to come up with an organization plan. Two hours later, it did. The plan that popped into awareness was fresh, novel, and creative beyond my highest hopes. There was no way that I, the egoistic, rational mind me, could have done it. Having that problem solved was wonderful, but having had the experience itself was even more important. From then on, I had no doubt that the rational, verbal I shared this body with another intelligent presence. The feeling was uncanny, weird. This other presence, however, did not seem like a servant. It was at least an equal, or more likely a superior. It behaved as though it had infinite patience and was wiser than I. But in another sense, it was helpless. I realized that by itself, it was totally isolated. On its own, it couldn't talk and it couldn't act. It was as though it had always been there, just patiently waiting for the rational mind to quiet down and cooperate. It needed me as much as I needed it. And did I need it? The experience made me start thinking seriously about arranging my life so that the mental noise level would stay down. My rational mind was convinced that the two of us needed to work together. In the experiential stage, the body-mind is taking steps to ensure that its activities are no longer directed by the old matrix of behavior determining drives and needs and fears. It actively wishes to be directed instead by this more profound intelligence. It wants to be only love, love in perception as interest and attention, and love in action as an agent through which the high values of being become part of the informational world. The body-mind is still an energized, capable, decision-making node of process, but with a vast difference in inner peace and outer effectiveness. One delightful part of this is that the compulsion to be ceaselessly active fades away. The wisdom seems content to let the body-mind just be much of the time. When it's time to do, the body does. But it's effortless and natural, an organic integrated involvement with the larger process. The body is no longer run by reactive emotion and by the uptight rational mind that always before tried to control everything through serious plan-directed action. It's almost as though when a body-mind allows itself to be lived by the wisdom, a relaxation of completion settles down upon the event. The striving universe relaxes a bit. This little piece of process has come into harmony with its source. Through a practice such as Vipassana or Nisargadatta's meditation on the I Am sense or Dafri John's 
happiness practice, we eventually find a peaceful place where we can go. Within that place, mind stuff is just more stuff to watch pass by. The state is one of non-reactivity and quiet joy. It is the place one of my teachers called home and a place of imperturbability. It is the alone space of Krishnamurti and the loneliness of Trungpa Rinpoche's Shambhala warrior. It is T.S. Eliot's still point of the turning world. It is the still place of being. Staying in the quiet is the way you find and get familiar with that place. You are there whenever you see yourself as the still center of witnessing awareness that is the real you. No matter if you, awareness, get lost in the most horrendous fast-moving show, you can return to the place of stillness and watch that same show with compassionate detachment, unperturbed, once you know how. Finding this place and learning to return there is the key to liberation. Staying there is liberation. Again and again to return and say to yourself, I am awareness watching the contents of consciousness. Awareness itself is the imperturbable space, and you are that awareness. There are various ways of conceptualizing this in-process situation. The Theravadan Buddhist sees it as disidentification. The universe, including human body minds, is just impersonal process, and giving up the wrong view of identification with the body-mind liberates. The Vedantist sees it as a larger identification. Our true identity is the ground of the entire process. Making that switch of identity liberates. The Christian mystic sees an identity of being. Our being and God's being are one. Experiencing that identity liberates. It is a single reality that these commentators are referring to, and their different concepts and verbal expressions highlight different aspects of that reality. All are legitimate ways of looking at it and describing it. All are partial and incomplete ways. When you get a new perspective on something, when you come to see with great depth and clarity the illusion and distortion and limitation in your former view, then a permanent change takes place. After that, you may occasionally forget to see things in the new way, but you can never really go back to the old mental space. You can't unsee what you've seen. You can't replace new clarity with old illusions. In the liberated state, there is freedom from domination by information. The body-mind's own brain-generated information. As I understand the Zen view of nirvana, one enters nirvana during those moments when there is a perfectly clear, intuitive seeing through of the curtain of information, during those moments when the mind is totally free of information's compulsive effects. Nirvana is always with us, always inherent in samsara, yet ordinarily obscured by the mind's identification with the information that overlays or modulates nirvana to produce samsara. 
When that identification is finally and completely broken, then awareness can watch with complete equanimity any informational show that the brain can create. Another way of looking at realization is this. There is an inherent dimension of depth to existence that we have been missing. A missing perspective that, when seen, makes everything stand out in three-dimensional bold relief. We could compare realization to the difference between viewing a slide in a slide viewer with its flat two-dimensional effect and simultaneously viewing two slides taken from positions four inches apart. Seen through a stereo viewer, the old viewmaster or the like, the whole scene then springs into three-dimensional life. Realization adds the missing depth, the missing dimension of being to our view of the world. It provides us with intuitive cognizance of the cosmic medium to complement our sense-based perception of the cosmic message. As radical transformation of the person takes place, what remains and what disappears? What can be expected as one nears the end point of the process? Combining what I see from my present vantage point in the early experiential stage with reports from others further along, I have formed a picture of life in the latter part of this stage. I'm sure that this picture will change somewhat as I continue my adventure in the years ahead. The reality will no doubt have its surprises. Nevertheless, it seems worthwhile to share this present view despite the risk that it might contain some errors of fact and emphasis. As I see it, the body, most mental and physical skills, voice, and appearance remain the same. But the reactivity is gone. Impulses of anger, hate, fear, jealousy, greed, craving, and aversion arise at times. But sustained attention and energy are denied them. So there no longer become states of anger, hate, fear, etc. Positive mind states are present much more of the time. Loving kindness, patience, equanimity, compassion, joy at another's good fortune, etc. Old, limited, less correct models of reality are dropped or are relegated to the special circumstances where they are appropriate. More holistic, more correct models are present much more of the time. These new models result in less judgment of others. There is a compassionate understanding that every body-mind is doing the best it can at every moment. What is at this moment must be. The mental-physical informational play that is unfolding at this instant is the inescapable effect of countless prior causes. It makes no sense to rail at present circumstances. What is at this moment simply is the logical consequence of all that has gone before. Acceptance, therefore, is only rational, sane. Let me accept the present moment's inevitability and allow intuitive wisdom to guide this body-mind into the next. Let me accept an imperfect present so that I may transmute the next moment and the next into something just a little more loving, a little more harmonious, a little wiser. Let me observe the present moment with deep interest, accept it, 
than let it go. Yes, these people have a profound acceptance of whatever is happening at this moment. They see this moment's frame of the informational show as a necessary unfolding of physical and mental causes. It might be possible to influence the next frame, but this one is spilled milk. Also, since these people live alertly, the intuitive process receives the information on current circumstances that it needs to guide them. Furthermore, their attentive observation turns off thought, keeping the mental noise down so that the inner guidance can be sensed. Lastly, in these people, the basic feeling of beingness, of identity, of dedication has expanded outward, away from the body and from mind contents, to include the whole universal process and its ground. My impression is that once someone arrives at this mental way of living, they almost always keep making the effort needed to stay there. I've heard a few stories about people far along the path who became alcoholics, or who got involved in sexual activities that caused suffering for others. I don't know if these stories are true or not, but I can see that they might be. The ancient brains are always going to be there, with their wanting, hating, survival-oriented programming still intact. They stay relatively quiet and benign when the right sort of mind habits are practiced, but they are never conquered in any full or permanent sense. Ruth Benedict's work implies that each person has the potential to experience the full range of human mind states. Our particular life situation cultivates and reinforces certain mind state potentials and fails to cultivate others. Spiritual practices are microcultures that change the cultivation and reinforcement balance, and as a result, the mind state mix. Reversion to old negative patterns, or even the development of new ones, is still technically possible. What makes this unlikely to happen is not that the mind states attained are permanent, but that someone who reaches this point on the path sees with utter clarity the need to keep on making the effort. That ends the Wisdom Page podcast episode titled The Path to Wisdom adapted from chapter 10 of my book, Toward Wisdom. Thanks for listening, and check out the many wisdom-related resources available on the Wisdom page. It's at www.cop.com. I'll spell that out, www.cop.com. Bye for now.